Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us for our third episode of Composers in Quarantine Drinking Cocktails. I'm here today with Chris Zuar, um, a band leader and composer based out of New York City. Um, and Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Stephen, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, and what are you drinking, as the viewers want to know? Uh, I'm currently drinking uh, an old-fashioned made with rye whiskey. How about you? I'm, <laughs> I'm drinking a whiskey neat. So, uh, Beautiful. So virtual cheers. Uh, thanks so much That's for being here, Chris. Um, yeah, man, this is such a great, great thing you got going here. Oh, man, thank you. Yeah, you know, I figured that, honestly, um, composers are the, the people who really just are totally behind the scenes 95% of the time. Um, I wanted to kind of take this opportunity while we're all in quarantine to feature um, in a more personal way, um, allow, allow composers uh, who I'm personally a fan of uh, to kind of share with whomever, with the world, with their fans, um, just a little bit more background about who they are. So Chris, you are, uh, your, your debut album, your debut big band album, Musing, came out in 2016. It was voted one of the best albums in Downbeat Magazines of 2016. But you've also uh, had your music performed by the WDR Big Band, uh, the Brussels Jazz Orchestra, and you're now working on your new album at, called um, Tonal Conversations, That's which, right. which, as I understand it, actually started off as a collaboration between film and like sculpture. So there's like a really big visual component to at least the the um, the, in, the inception of that project. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Chris, I mean, to, to just get things started here, um, you know, I think your, your accolades, they, they speak, professional accolades, they speak for themselves, um, you know, just in terms of uh, the, your body of, of writing work being performed by those amazing orchestras worldwide. Um, and obviously your excellent uh, taste in cocktails, um, you know, so, so I, you know, as, obviously, as a, as a big band uh, fanatic myself, enthusiast, uh, maybe fanatic is slightly too strong. Um, but as an enthusiast myself, I'm, I'm always curious as to what got you, what got people started writing, composing, and what was the shift from being a, an instrumentalist to being a composer, um, to being a com composer arranger type. Um, so yeah, let's maybe just start off with some background on you as as an artist and as a musician. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for the intro. Uh, I grew up in Long Island, New York. Uh, my parents still live out there in a town called Manhasset. And uh, I took up an instrument when most people take up instruments, uh, fourth grade, probably around nine or 10 years old. And uh, the trumpet seemed like a great choice. Um, and that ended up being big part of my life really from from the age nine or ten up to when I went to college um, I went to the New England Conservatory right around 2005 or so but um, I should probably mention that in high school I had the great opportunity uh, to take a theory and composition course as, as just sort of like a, a class elective um, and that's when I really caught the writing bug um, I was interested in, in jazz and classical music pretty early on. Uh, 
the first, if I'm recalling this correctly, the first two records I got, um, probably at, at age nine, uh, a compilation disc of Louis Armstrong's uh, Hot Fives and Hot Sevens, and a recording of Wynton Marsalis um, and the English Chamber Orchestra performing many of the great trumpet, excuse me, uh, trumpet concertos, uh, Haydn, uh, Hummel, etc. And I really got hooked from there. It was sort of just like an instant love affair. Um, but sort of jumping back ahead to this, this class that I took in high school, um, it was really just sort of my first opportunity to freely explore um, composition and to have a mentor this man by the name of Mark von Schenkoff, who just retired from Manhasset High School after a long tenure there. And um, and so, I, yeah, it just sort of bloomed from there. Um, I think shortly after, uh, I ended up taking a few lessons with a composer who you probably will know, uh, someone named Mike Holliber, who's been a, uh, an influence to uh, many young writers of our generation. And um, sort of everything just took off from that moment. Sort of uh, completely fell in love with uh, large ensemble music, started checking out records. And uh, I know I'm rambling, but. Um, no, you're, that, that you're was... definitely not rambling. Very far oh, from cool. it. Yeah. Th that was more or less the beginning. Um, was, was that class in high school and then starting to take some lessons with Mike, uh, discovering all these great writers, discovering Mike's music with the Gotham Jazz Orchestra, um, discovering Thad Jones, Brooke Meyer, Maria, um, all these amazing composers. And I sort of just uh, was hooked and I haven't looked back since. Awesome, yeah, so for you, it's not so much that you were a uh, performing instrumentalist uh, to even in high school uh, and, and then there was a, the switch to composing and arranging for you it was very much like a simultaneous marriage of just like music and interest and and theory and big band and Haydn and Hummel and and Skane and uh, just um, so you so you've been writing ever since you picked up uh, the the, uh, the instrument the horn yeah, pr pretty much. I mean, not seriously. Um, I thought I was going to be a jazz trumpet player. I mean, I went to NEC with the intent of studying jazz trumpet, but I was very interested in writing, um, very interested in the jazz orchestra. Brooke Meyer was teaching at NEC at that point in time, so um, I had hopes of, of studying with him. Uh, unfortunately, he was ill right around that time and, and sort of wasn't teaching as frequently, so I didn't get the chance to um, to hang with him much. But um, once I got to NEC, it was it was almost immediate where where I just sort of um, saw my path as a composer, not really as a trumpet player, and shifted. So interesting, you know. During that time, when two thousand five to two thousand nine was mm -hmm. about the time that I was actually attending the. Um, New England, the New England Conservatory Preparatory School. Um, Whoa. I'm from Lexington, Mass, and, and I 
and I firsthand got to study with and be a part of Ken Schaphorst's Youth Jazz Orchestra. So, so I know how amazing Ken is, uh, both as a writer and and as an educator. So, did you yeah, did, did you get the chance to work with Ken and 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 write for that ensemble? Yeah, I did. Um, I studied for one semester with Ken, or maybe it was one year. Uh, my primary teachers at NEC were Frank Carlberg, um, great. Who's Finnish. playing on your album, right? Yeah, great pianist mm -hmm. and composer. And um, I studied with Frank for a few years. And I also studied with John McNeil because uh, I was still taking trumpet uh, lessons at NEC. Um, but really the big draw was, was this jazz composers workshop orchestra that NEC was uh, pretty well known for. Mm -hmm. Brooke Myers started it and Frank Carlberg uh, took it over. And those were some of my really earliest um, attempts at, at writing big band music. And I learned so much really just from having weekly reading sessions with, with great student musicians. Yeah, for sure. And then that's kind of similar, or rather that's how the BMI workshop was inspired, um, which you mentioned his name before, Mike Holliber, and Jim McNeely ran for many, many years um, in sort of like this tour de force, uh, this duo, dynamic duo tour de force of, of, of big band minds. Yeah. Um, and Mike uh, and you now work very closely together. Yeah, so I, I've been working as Mike's copyist, his music copyist, probably since 2008 or nine. Um, so we've been working pretty closely in that capacity for, for a good uh, 10, 10 or so years. And I would go so far as to say that that's the real, um, the real crux of, of how I learned how to write. For is, from, is from working with, with Mike? Yeah, from, from copying his scores. He's such a great writer, a great craftsman, that the simple act of having to break apart his score, put it back together line by line, really just taught me uh, taught me a lot. Even even if it was like through osmosis, you know, not even really paying close attention to um, what exactly was happening in the score, but just like seeing how things are constructed on a very basic level. You do that enough times and you start to put put a few things together yeah um, yeah, yeah for sure um yeah. well that's great yeah mike also obviously works at uh, manhattan school of music so you so you that's finished right. your undergrad degree at, at nec and what and obviously you're from long island so when you moved back to new york were you thinking okay like i i really want to go to manhattan school of music for my master's degree were you thinking okay i'm I just want to go to New York City to be in New York City. Well, where did you want to do the BMI workshop? What was your primary inspiration for wanting to? Um, yeah, it, it, it was all of those things, really. I mean, I always knew that I would move back to New York. As much as I love Boston, uh, I knew I, I wasn't going to stick around uh, after graduating. I knew Jim McNeely's music. Um, I didn't know at that point in time that I would attend the Manhattan School of Music, uh, but I knew that I, I wanted to uh, at least study with him in some sort of capacity. And so uh, the first thing I did uh, upon return was to um, to apply for the BMI workshop, because I knew 
Mike and Jim were, were leading that and I wanted to be involved. And I knew the lineage too, you know, all the great writers that had gone through that program. Yeah. Um, and maybe just from a, a logistics standpoint, I knew it was a way that I could get my music read monthly or bi-monthly uh, by a great New York band. So that, you know, that was a huge draw for me as well. Right, it's like the NEC Composers Workshop 2.0. Uh -huh. Or 1.0, depending on how you want to look at the meta. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I don't know. It was just sort of continuing that sort of learning atmosphere um, that was so great at NEC. I just, you know, I thought it, I'd be a fool not to try to um, find a similar sort of community in New York. Um, so what so, was some, yeah. so what were you some of your, your early big band um I, I dare I say experiments. What, what were some of your, your early big band writing? What, where were you pulling your influences from? Yeah, so like I said, I was, I was always interested in classical music from a, from a pretty early age. Sort of my interest in jazz and other musics ran parallel, I think, and, and they're still in many ways running parallel for me. Um, so I, I had experimented NEC having like a long lineage of the third stream concepts, Gunther Schuller and, and a lot of the great um, artists that had passed through those walls. Um, I had written pieces for string quartet and big band, um, sort of oboe soloist and jazz orchestra. Um, just sort of, um, I guess, early attempts at, at bridging those two types of music. And in terms of of writers, um, I, I'd say in high school, once once I got to start hanging with Mike, I was checking out, uh, I was checking out his record Thought Trains with the Gotham Jazz Orchestra quite a bit. Quake, which had mm -hmm. come out uh, several years later, he was he was really one of my one of my early um, contemporary jazz orchestra influences. Wow, that's so cool that you got to know Mike um, at such an early. Uh early age you know it's kind of crazy yeah. yeah um the more i think about it the more the years pass and i realize you know what our sort of um capacity has been from sort of teacher student mentor to um to friend he's a close friend and and now a colleague uh it's 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 one of the the more special musical relationships that i have right yeah that and is then, really special of course oh sorry continue I was just going to say, yeah, that is really special. I didn't mean to cut you off at all. Yeah, I think um, I think everyone looks for a, a mentor, sort of regardless of of the uh, the pursuit. Um, so so I feel really fortunate to have had him, and then and then others sort of along the way. Um, in terms of other writing influences, pretty early on, even several years now before I met Mike. Um, I, growing up in, in Manhasset, this town in Long Island, uh, I had a, a very close childhood friend, um, Theo Katzman, who some of you may know from the band Wolfpack, if you're uh, in, into this band. Theo and I go back quite a long ways. We played baseball together and awesome. uh, played a lot of music together. But Few people know that that Theo's dad Lee was a world class trumpet player. Um, 
played in many of the great big bands, Kenton, Holman, um, Claude Thornhill, uh, was a member of the Tonight Show band, Buddy Rich, you know, like kind of... Yeah, he ran the with. gauntlet of, of styles and just the history of, of the lineage. Totally, yeah. And so I remember very early on, uh, this could have been maybe the, the, the same time, fourth or fifth grade, nine or 10 years old, where I started checking out Stan Kenton as a result of knowing Lee and um, sort of he was a, a featured soloist in that band, which is crazy, man. Just such beautiful recordings. And so I was checking out those Kenton records pretty, like pretty early on. And um, while I can't necess necessarily call him like a, uh, a deep influence on my music, he was like part of my, my, um, my genesis. Kenton? When it, yeah, Kenton. Awesome. Yeah. I've, I've, I'm pretty sure I need to revisit all that music. I mean, Kenton, wasn't he, he was in part very famous amongst, you know, musicians, at least for hiring young composers and arrangers to be writing for his band at, at all times. Totally. You know? So he always had a fresh take on the music just um, by nature of the fact that uh, the age, the, you know, the, the youthfulness that, that uh, you know, that excited naivete that comes from, from being a young composer getting to write for, you know, the Kenton band, you know, and I, yes. that band just had so much fire. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and really was one of, one of the, uh, the early third stream, um, jazz composers. Someone who was interested in, in writing for these super big groups, right? Essentially like a studio orchestra. Right. Um, and so I, I, I'm definitely in need of, of revisiting all that music, but I, I remember, some of those tapes, yeah, we're talking about tape decks um, <laughs> that that Theo would pass me of of his dad and the Kenton band. Pretty yeah, amazing. that's awesome, man. Yeah, very cool. So you were really just surrounded by um, by some very exciting people from 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 the time you were very young. Some very yeah. exciting musical. I, I'm I'm fortunate, I, I think. Um, Manhasset if anyone knows, is certainly not known for its, uh, its arts community. Mm. Um, it's a big sports and lacrosse um, town, as, as many, many schools are on Long Island. But, uh, and, and not, to, not to rip on sports, I, I was a jock growing up too, you know, all throughout high school, so uh, no hate there. But um, <laughs> just to say that, that I found some some very interesting people, some sort of uh, kindred spirits along the way, which I'm I'm super thankful for. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So so when so when you okay so so let let let's let's summarize here. So so you start yeah. off in yeah. Long Island. You pick up the trumpet. You you start listening to to Winton and 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 then you start listening to Mike Holliver. Uh, obviously, we're skipping some steps here. You wind up yeah. at New England Conservatory. You move back to New York City. So tell us a little bit about how, what, what is the inspiration for your own band? Like some background around how you started your band, because I know in addition to having your big band, you also have that fantastic project that we spoke about before we, we hopped on uh, to the interview today. Um, yeah. It features Dave, Dave Liebman and, and Loray and Alex Loray and um, John Raganese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
I suppose I would skip to the end of my master's um, degree at the Manhattan School of Music. This is, I guess, right around 2013 mm -hmm. or so. Um, I had amassed enough music that I was happy with, I guess, um, or I felt good enough about documenting. And so I knew that I wanted to uh, set out to make some sort of record. Um, and, and so really the, the first thing that came to my mind was to, uh, to try to hire people that I really admired um, growing up. Not that I'm so much older than, than all these cats in my band, but um, these are musicians that had played on records that I sort of idolized uh, as, as, a, uh, as a teen. And so here I am in New York these, uh, these mus musicians all live either in the city or um, outside in Westchester, New Jersey, wherever. And so I just, I set out to, to try to put together a band of, of heroes, more or less, um, not knowing that I would get just about all of them. Um, I don't know. I guess, uh, I guess I paid well enough because <laughs> none, of, none of them knew who I was. So they were more or less just taking a risk. I had Mike involved in the project as a producer and these are all his friends. And, and so I guess he vouched for me and, and it sort of just went from there. Right. So, so your album, you know, features people like Dave Pietro and it also features the Ferber brothers. Um, but one yeah, of the, yeah. the most unique parts of your record is that you're, you're utilizing what I think in most cases is a very underutilized instrument in the modern big band idiom, which is the human voice. And you have Joe Lari featured on the album um it just adds such like a, a a just a beautiful element of um uh of human of humanness you know it, uh, to, to, to the sound of the ensemble i think that that's really wonderful um yeah that's that's totally it it's um it's it's bringing in sort of the, the human quality the human voice which blends so well so seamlessly with um any number of other combinations of instruments and I'm certainly not the first person to use that um, Kenny Wheeler uh, used that extensively on uh, music for large ensemble yeah uh, another record that I, I was uh, super into in high school oh man yeah that record uh, is just unbelievably gorgeous incredible um, right yeah you know I got to play with Kenny once very randomly um, he was doing a master class with Dave Douglas at NYU when I was attending school there and I was part of the ensemble that <clears throat> that was playing, and it, the the on, the master class was just a, a master class on the music of Kenny Wheeler, and Dave Douglas was presenting it, and so I was playing with Dave, and Kenny was there, but at the end of the master class, we were playing one of his tunes, and in the middle of the tune, like you know, Ken, he was he was sick at the time, uh, but he was his aide rolled him in his wheelchair to the front of the of the of the room and to the front of the bandstand and he got on Dave's flugelhorn and just kicked butt he just yeah. let loose and and Kenny yeah so the, the, and I mean honestly I only checked out that record I think you know after that that was in 2010 um, yeah for me I was a sophomore at, at, in, in college um, but yeah one of the greatest records and also does an amazing job of utilizing the human voice and actually, that, that's one thing that really stood out to me about the score that you sent me um, c 
communion because you're using like the the instrumentation that you're using is, is you know it's the big band right so it's got five woodwinds four trombones four trumpets rhythm section but you're also featuring a mandolin and a violin as well um yep so by nature of the fact that you're like really shifting up the orchestration like you're getting a really the the instrumentation should i say you're really you're you're by nature shifting the sound of what the ensemble can be right? absolutely before you even start on on orchestration so so maybe like let, let's dive into some more nitty-gritty here let's let's sure let, let's let's talk about about communion communion and maybe you can talk about like your approach to um why did you um choose to add those um those instruments to your to your ensemble the the, the mandolin and the violin yeah totally um so communion is part of my collaboration with Ambiel, uh, the tonal conversations right. um, project that I'm currently working on. Right. And, um, and so this piece was part of a commission uh, by a group in Chicago. Um, it's not a group. It's um, sort of an art installation called 150 Media Stream. Mm -hmm. Sort of this sculptural uh, video screen that's in the lobby of um, a commercial building right on the river. Uh, and it's 150 feet long. And so um, this was one of Hence the three. Name. Yeah, one of three pieces that I wrote uh, for that commission. Um, and I should mention that uh, my partner, Ann Beale, who's um, a super talented animation artist and filmmaker um, has been making really incredible hand-painted animations for this entire project. So she works Whoa. Pre yeah, predominantly in watercolor. And you can imagine sort of, I, I'm, I'm sort of understanding more and more about animation as, as we go along, but it's an insane amount of paintings, you know, like, getting into the thousands if you think uh sort of 12 frames per second um the uh the painting number sort of starts to stack up pretty rapidly um so so this this piece in particular communion um is inspired by the um the place where ann grew up which is western north carolina right outside of Asheville, in the mountains which are i don't know if you've ever been down in that part uh, of the country, but it's super beautiful, um, super idyllic. Um, and so I think right before I started writing this piece, we had gone on a trip to, um, to visit Anne's hometown and just spent sort of a week um, in, in that beautiful part of the country. And the sort of the basis of the compositional project uh, process um, is centered around this um, this tree cricket called a katydid. And the reason why it's called a katydid is because that's the sound that it makes right. at night as it chirps, katydid, katydid, that sort of rhythmic pattern. And so uh, another integral part I should mention of, of, of this collaboration is we're taking um, soundscapes from um, areas, regions, places uh, in the world that are significant or important to us. 
And, and so we, we had taken several sound recordings of these groupings. Now, bear in mind that these, these uh, katydids uh, exist up in trees and you get groupings of trees and you get all sorts of interesting cross rhythms um, between the choirs of bugs, sort of this glorious cacophony. Um, and it's, it's a very rigid sound, but it's, it's really beautiful, um, I found. And if, if you checked out the end of the piece, there's actually a sound recording of the bugs. Oh, I didn't uh, know what that was, but... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually... But that's, I knew that it those fit. Those are the bugs. I knew that it fit. I knew it was a part yeah. of the music. But I didn't realize it, that it was that integrally a part of the inspiration for the piece at such a fundamental level. Totally. And and in terms of, like, the actual material that I generated from that, it's, it's, not, it's not super... Um, specific meaning i didn't transcribe bug patterns or anything like that it was more just sort of associative to the, the general um sort of sensation that i had while listening to these groups of bugs um so what i was going for sort of in in, in the introduction was to have all these sort of cross layers this counterpoint of rhythm um all happening these different groupings it's sort of in, in a in a weird time signature. Um, sort of th three bars of seven and a bar of six, but the bars of seven are broken up sort of um, in, in different ways. Uh, and sort of just taking different groupings of eighth notes and, and seeing what, what it would sound like to have duple and triple meters happening simultaneously and the different sort of polyrhythmic effects that you might get. Uh, so that's sort of the idea uh, there. In terms of the uh, the orchestration, it just seemed pretty natural for me to uh, to sort of include instruments that are sort of um, how would you say uh, most native to to that part of Appalachia. Thinking about um, sort of Appalachian roots folk music. Um, mm. banjos, mandolin, right, um, violin, of course, or fiddle, as they would call it there. Who is the violin and, soloist on this recording? Yeah, so it, it's uh, Sarah Caswell. Awesome, and she's a frequent collaborator of Miho's as well, Miho Hazan. Yeah, she's such a, an amazing musician. It's a really hard part that I wrote for her. Maybe it doesn't sound that way, but it's um, supposed to come across in a very free um sort of stereotypically Appalachian small group sort of vibe. Hmm. Uh, but it's sort of laid on top of this uh, very complex rhythmic cycle. Right. So it, it, it sounds a lot freer than it, it's, it's actually notated, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's the goal, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, you know, that's, that's why you, uh, you call the best. That's why you call the baddest. All yeah. right, so so walk us through a little bit uh, some specifics of your of your score here. This is this, this yeah. is so interesting. I mean, my first take is that when I when I, after hearing you talk about the uh, what are the what are the names of the crickets again? They're called katydids. Katydids. After yep. listening to you talk about the katydids, my first impression is that you've put the katydid sound spread out in, in percussive nature around the ensemble, starting in the trumpets. In, yep. in various mutes, um, and I see here in the clarinet as well. 
Then you have this really interesting piano figure that kind of becomes an ostinato um, yeah. throughout at least the, the first, the introduction to the piece. And it's not till, till later, at, around measure 25, that we start to get into like some more modal, let's say, exploration. Yeah. Like diving into the harmony in a, in a, in a deeper way. So maybe you can walk us through um, some of how you approach that and just building up, you know, this is such one of my one of my favorite parts of listening to this piece, you know, of course, uh, you know, my own listening habits, I, I listen to it and then I listen to it with a score. And you're absolutely right. You know, the notation makes it look a certain way, but the performance of the piece and obviously the way that you've intended it, the way that you've written it <clears throat> is intended to sound very free and it comes across that that way. But what's really, cool. really nice about it is that it has this beautiful build yeah. throughout. And you all you enter this vibe. I can almost hear, or rather I can almost feel the fact that you're like sitting in between like three, four, five different different choirs of of um of uh, crickets. Yeah. I'll just say it's a trip to try to conduct it. Uh, just because <laughs> if you if you pay too closely attention to to one rhythmic pattern, it can throw you way off. Right. Uh, so you sort of have to have your head down in the score. Um, and I have the beaming pattern sort of laid out there in the first four bars, but it, uh, it's still, it's still pretty tricky to sort of navigate yourself your way through it. Um, yeah, so, so pretty much the first, uh, I'm not, I'm not looking at a score, but as I can recall, the first 24 bars really before, um, the, the real harmonic rhythm starts, it's really just sort of a, a prolongation, um, to uh, yeah, sort of a prolongation of five to 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 get to B major, um, and w one thing that I I'll mention I I didn't uh, I didn't mention it earlier when we were talking about some influences, but Johann Sebastian Bach has sort of been my my musical source from the beginning. I I know uh, I'm not alone there. Um, but yeah, I just I just thought I, I'd uh, I'd mention mentioned that little tippet it's hard to even call it an, an influence it's just sort of like it's a it's a guide musically it's a source um something that i continually come back to to sort of center myself uh musically right when i feel like i'm i'm you know uh going astray in some way i i uh, i find box music brings me back to it um yeah he just pretty much this it, channel you know, of um of, of musical energy just flowing through him at all times. Like something that I always, <laughs> I mean, listening to his music, it's just like everything you want to hear, but you don't know you want to hear yet is what he writes. Totally. You know, whether it's transpositions, whether it's orchestration, whether it's all of a sudden the melody from the beginning comes back again. Yeah, the guy was an absolute genius, like an absolute source, as you said. So yeah, you know, I mean, just just to add one other thing, and I know we're um, we're light on time, but um, the thing that I find so fascinating about Bach is like you can look at his music in two different ways. You can look at the the immense complexity, sort of like the the mathematical um, method behind a lot of the construction of the music. But then if you just back away, I mean, it's it's still incredibly beautiful. It's and just suppose, music. Yeah, the, and, and the metaphor that I use, I, and I'm certainly not the first person to think about this, but it's like, 
examining anything in nature, a flower, you can look at the cellular complexity of, of the thing up close. And then if you back away, you just see something that's beautiful. And uh, that's sort of what I get out of box music. Right, and both are beautiful by nature. Exactly. So how did Bach influence your writing for, for, for um, communion? Uh, I'm not sure it, it specifically influenced for this piece. Um, there's certainly much more obvious influence in um, uh, sort of on, on some of the, the pieces and musings on my first record. But the uh, one of the greatest things, sort of lessons that I've continued to try to, to work on over the, the last years is um, sort of the idea of um, obviously voice leading reigning supreme in terms of sort of dictating um, much of the harmony really harmony coming through melody sort of like existing uh, on horizontal and vertical planes at, at both times um, but also like the importance of line like if you were to break down sort of uh, a fugue or an invention of box you can you just see like even the way it's notated it's notated in the streams of line whether it be two lines three lines or four lines it's so crystal clear um, that that's that's definitely something that uh, just sort of like in, in, a, in a more abstract sort of influence that it's it's something I think about um, really with anything that I write now when you say lines do you mean melodies yeah, yeah, whether like whether it's melody, whether it's like counter melody that's not really supposed to have the same sort of impact, sort of like just the idea of polyphony, um, all of these lines occurring at at uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I guess one thing that I've um, thought a lot more about as a result of that is just like, the idea of the inner line, or if we're looking at like, uh, maybe not so much in this piece, but some other pieces on this current project, uh, where say like, uh, if we think about what might happen in a trombone three line, typically if, if you're looking at a um, sort of a, a, a 2T or, or a, a, a group passage, it might not be that interesting, but I'm, I'm very interested now in trying to make every line, every part musical in some way, or, or to pay attention to the shape of the melody, even if it's an inner line, or sort of um, uh, something that's more subservient uh, to, to another melody or, or something else going on within the um, sort of the structure. Right. That makes much sense. No, totally. It really does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of a shift, right, from that, from like the writing styles of someone like Sammy Nestico, where you totally. have like, you know, that traditional trombone three part, which is always tied to trombone one. Right. right. Um, now you're basically you're splitting up. So instead of orchestrating, like, let's say, horizontally within the ensemble, now you're actually like taking that and you're saying, OK, like, what happens if I orchestrate vertically and I give mm -hmm different people different combinations of instruments a certain color on each of these lines and like really getting uh creative with the the polyphony as you as you put it the polyphony the the possibilities wow polyphonic yeah. possibilities of uh, polyphonic possibilities of, of, of i think writing. that's a book you might you might need to write that one <laughs> 
Oh man, well I'm glad I'm doing this interview series then because I've got some amazing masters of um, of poly. What did I even say? Poly <laughs> Poly polyphonic possibilities. Polyphonic possibilities. Hey, I love it, man. There we go. 